0: Good day, greetings, hello. It's Art at the End of the World, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. My name is Mark Wigmore. Welcome to another remix episode here on the new Classical FM presented, Zoomer Podcast Network distributed Art at the End of the World podcast. So glad that you're here, glad to be with you. What we've done here is we've taken episodes from the first season, which really was heard by uh, quite a few people for doing it out of my office at home, but not nearly as many as we have access to now here on the Zoomer Podcast Network. So we've repackaged and remixed, and today features someone I've known for a long time and someone I've been aware of for even longer, an artist, a cultural thinker to be sure, a media personality, actress, musician, performance artist, Sook Lee is here last year she put together a hybrid documentary theater show titled unsafe it was on stage back in the spring and it looked at many examples of censorship in the modern age and even reflected on older examples especially from the art world and she really put it all out there very uh fascinating recounting of how we've censored art and ideas over the ages over the decades And everybody was talking about this thing, people who saw it, people who didn't. Uh, There were talkbacks right after the show was finished, so people would discuss there. Uh, Then the critics were polarized on its ability to transcend. So more on this show and what Sukyan did and what her whole life has been about in just moments. Art at the End of the World, supported by Red Eye Media, an innovator in arts, communications, and media relations for over 15 years. Red Eye Media works with leading film, television, and performing arts organizations to build their audiences and their impact through engaged, passionate, and strategic communications. Those organizations include Canadian Stage, the Musical Stage Company, Pacific Northwest Pictures, Summer Works Performance Festival, and the Toronto Dance Theatre. For more information on the power of Red Eye, visit redeyemedia.ca. The podcast also brought to you by Crows Theatre, one of this country's most acclaimed arts organization based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crows creates unforgettable theatre that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheater.com for info and tickets. Go and enjoy a show at Crows, which of course is at Carlaw and Dundas. So suk Lee, uh, of course, like so many of you, I'm sure Gen Xers, Boomers, uh, we saw her on Much Music, right? Uh, she was a fascinating addition to the VJ lineup of the day. And interestingly, her boss then is my boss now, Moses Neimer. And when she was in to record this podcast, uh, she got together with Moses and we went on a bit of a tour. It was a lot of fun. She has stories to tell about her relationship with Moses Nimer but uh, obviously he saw that she was a unique voice and an artist, and so he introduced her to Canada and beyond. And how many zany ideas and experiments did she attempt as a VJ uh, on Queen Street West back in the day? Quite a few. Her interviews with musicians, very memorable. Uh, we'll talk about several of those during our conversation. Then she really pushed the boundaries. People still talk about her explicit film Short Bus, and I know it was difficult for her bosses at the CBC when that film came out. Nudity, uh, sex, all revolving around one of your star hosts is tricky business, but uh, it remains one of the feathers in her cap, to be sure. And the CBC is actually where Sukin and I met, in the hallways, very approachable person. She always seemed to have a, a few minutes for a chat, which was great because I was just this guy who worked with uh, Rich Turfry on a different show on Radio 2. So I always had a good experience chatting with her. And she was the host of Definitely Not the Opera for many years and was an important voice within the CBC, not only as an artist and a thinker, but also as a Chinese-Canadian. And certainly the topic of diversity and who gets to tell stories is a big part of her show that she uh, put together last year with Canadian Stage. She's someone who isn't afraid to get into the public realm and stir the pot, poke the bear, even if she doesn't have all the answers or know exactly how it's all going to go. She just wants to put art into the world and see how people react. So when I saw this show, Unsafe, in 2019, I knew that tsuk had to be on the podcast. She's addressing the voices within art, the changing power structures within arts organizations, the idea that installing diversity into the arts is hard work, that it's messy. She asks and looks at how young people are feeling about art, about censorship— the idea of reverse colonialism was brought up in the show. Appropriation, gender, sex, our tendency to speak to each other only in digital terms. The power of being together to experience art. Really together. Are you getting this right? It makes sense for this podcast. I had to speak to her. So here on Remix, this is my conversation with Sookyan Lee from 2019. It must be a bit weird coming so to this cute. to I this like, place, Ganya. because there's Jeez. a whole bunch of people here from from your old days. Yeah, I bet. Like lots, I think.
1: Oh my god, <laughs> Moses is like this father, the father figure. He He's was. the the, he the Lorne Michaels
0: of uh, <laughs> of sort of this you know city, much music. He's so sweet. Yeah. Oh my god. And he came to your show.
1: He did last
0: night. Yeah. I'm so excited that you're here. Suk-Yen Lee uh, on the podcast, and uh, the uh, this is an interesting moment because I saw your show the other night, Unsafe, and uh, I thought to myself, this is only perfect that the end of season one, Art at the End of the World, comes to a conclusion with you because everything that I've tried to talk about on this podcast over the last three months has something to do with your discussion in your, in your play.
1: Ah, oh, fantastic.
0: And so I'm so thrilled that you're here. I would imagine, similar to your show, it's hard to even know where to start because everything is tipping. Yeah. Everything is up in the air.
1: It's a swirl. Somebody in the audience, we do a talk back every night, and they were like, yes, I'm just ingesting this swirl. I'm like, I like that description.
0: And there's good things happening and bad things happening. Up is down. Uh, left is sideways. right. Bonkers. It's a crazy time, right?
1: It is. It is a, it's very an intense time a lot of upheaval but a lot of potential a lot of possibility and a lot of possibility of horrible things as well
0: right and no wonder you as you know i experienced your your piece the other night there's so many directions you can go and it is hard to find the way forward through it all because there's so much to unpack so yeah. much to discuss
1: a lot of a lot of confusion and anxiety in our current cultural moment to unpack
0: yeah it seems uh, that uh, no matter what I do, there's no avoiding seeing you uh, naked running around. Mm. That seems to be part of, uh, part of Sookie and Steel.
1: Sometimes, <laughs> yes. I mean, I've been, I remember my very first naked job was when I was a teenager in Vancouver. Oh, wow. And that was, you know, I was living on my own since I was 15 and trying to make some money. And I posed for art classes. Okay. Um, and that is a really tough job. Posing for nude art classes. Very still. Well, very still. I, I remember going up, you know, you, they just call you, you got a gig here. You, you go to, you know, a high school right. on a Sunday in, in the basement. And you walk in and there's like all elderly people at a art class. And you sit on a little little stage and stand there, you know, sit there holding a pose for like over an hour. That is so hard. My limbs would fall asleep. And then afterwards, I'd go around and see people's paintings. And there I was, a green blob in one. Right. (laughs) Very interpretive. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, no, I I often use nudity in a way that is very plain Jane. Like it's very much like matter of fact, how you walk around in your bathroom, as we all did this morning and sat on the crapper, you know? But
0: that's how it felt in this current show, too. Just taking
1: your clothes off. Right. Putting them back on, sitting down, moving around, so it's not for necessarily erotic titillation. It's just like I do find the naked body is an interesting tableau, metaphorically, literally, that it does. It's it's raw and vulnerable and naked, naked as you are. Right. Um, so I really, I really love that, and it
0: also. Do you feel comfortable doing it?
1: I mean, it never does. Like I always sort of go, oh, get, go. Don't.
0: Because from my experience, I think okay. Well, there I was. I had my singular experience. I walked out of the theater that night, and I'm left with that experience. Yeah. And then I thought to myself on my way here today, uh, well, Sukiann has to do that every <laughs> every night. That just is part of her routine, it right? Is, now and I kind of go
1: okay. Sometimes twice a day, right? Desmond Cole, a phenomenal journalist and activist, came to see the show, and he was like, "You, you did a magic trick there," because uh-huh. he was like. I was looking at the stage and you were naked. At first he was like, "Woo, woo, woo,", woo. and then he was like, "Uh, well, so what? That's no big deal." Like the next second he was like, "Yeah, well, that's whatever. That's a body." At first I was like taken aback, and then I was like, "Matter of fact." And so it should be. And I mean,
0: and I relatively was, quickly too. We, I found that too. That I got there very quickly. I'm like, "Okay, well, here we are." You know what? Yeah.
1: On the set of Short Bust, the movie that, I, that was a sexually explicit film that I acted in, I was very nervous to take my clothes off for the first, you know, naked scene. And so what I did was I demanded that everyone in the room, including all the crew, everybody, take their clothes off too. And we turned, cranked up the stereo and moved around and danced around like goofballs. Right. And it c- quickly demystified any body taboo. And it was very, very normal. After what I was like, uh, could you please put your clothes back on? Um, so I do use nudity, but also it's also symbolic. I, there's a couple times that I appear naked in the in the show. One is when we reenact and recreate a famously censored painting, classical painting of a naked woman at a beat, uh, at a picnic. But again, it's a different thing there where it's like uh, the woman, again, taking the risk, being naked, bearing all, putting her ass on the line, surrounded by men who are clothed and pointing at her. So it becomes also, it's sort of, the symbolism inverts
0: itself as well. I do like that idea that anxiety around it evaporates in some of these experiences. So
1: long as we can talk about it, and I think that has been my compulsion. I mean, the show is all about, it began as a sort of investigation into art and censorship, and then as I began to utilize my journalistic skills to interview various artists, I realize that much of them have been muzzled, silence excluded. The ideas that they wish to talk about were too risque by cultural institutional standards and they were kiboshed. And I do feel that it's really important to talk about these things in order for us to get more of a beat on what what exactly it is that we're afraid of and perhaps overcome that fear.
0: Even just to stir it up.
1: Yes, totally. There's nothing else. There's a gazillion ideas in this thing. I think everybody walks out kind of going, talking to their friends quite a bit. Like afterwards, I was going to the bus stop last night, and I came across a group of people still debating mm-hmm. based upon what they had just seen.
0: I think you've done a great service. I really enjoyed the show, and I wasn't—I tried to go in with an open mind, and I have a little bit of context for you. We've worked together, or at least in the same building at CVC and so we've talked a little bit, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to be open. And, uh, of course, there's moments where I'm thinking to myself— Okay, uh, you know I'm uncomfortable here, or this is pushing me, or triggering me, or whatnot. And uh, but at the same time, uh, by the time I walked out, I had a lot to think about, and that's about as much as you can ask. I
1: hope for utility in my work. Yeah. And this one was particularly a passion project because there were so many obstacles in trying to do it. There were, I encountered a lot of, you know, resistance, and, and we we learn about resistance. that in the show. I talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of <laughs> obstacles that I it almost did not come to pass. And I was literally writing it still like as we went to the stage.
0: People use the word organic a lot, but I feel that that term really does apply to this. Peace. I mean, you really are kind of making it up as as, as elements come your way, whether was, an interview was finished or, or somebody pulled out, or somebody decided they didn't want to be a part of it, or the the, or the com-
1: Canadian stage itself saying we, we don't we, we, we think we're going to cancel it,
0: and we learn all about that in in the experience of seeing it, and and I think that that I I would imagine that type of storytelling has been done in some format before. Uh, but for me it was quite unique, and I I really admired that.
1: Well, it's, um, you know, once I encountered the people and their stories and their accounts of being censored and silenced and excluded, I just rooted for them, and I felt like I needed to finish the project for them because literally it was like, okay, we're going to either kill the piece or bump it to two years from now. When they say they're going to bump it, like I could shine it to a a gem, but in two years— the conversation is going to be done. Everyone's already have talked about or it. Or different, at least. Yeah, different. Yeah. But it's in- crucial to, to facilitate this conversation now. So I pretty much use my will to muscle <laughs> everyone, shove it on stage just out of sheer utility, knowing that maybe we just got to be able to be okay Broaching some of these difficult subjects.
0: You mentioned compulsion uh, a little earlier, and I'll I'll mention a couple of memories I have of you, and and hopefully we can go back a little bit to to dig into that. But. let me just uh, look. Oh, okay. Well, this is one that you actually bring up in the show, and this is you on When You Were a Much Music VJ. I think that's how a lot of people came to know who you are, and then, of course, with the DNTO on CBC and on and on, and various other uh, you know high points on, on the seismograph of your career. But uh, uh, the, you point out the the piece that you did where you uh, were dead on Queen Street yeah. West. On Much Music. You, you just lay there on the pavement.
1: Much Music was a the- Best job in that it was my first job, first legit official job. And Moses Neimer, who heads up Classical FM, still uh, now now radio maker and magazine maker. Yeah. Uh, idea. idea still shit. a
0: TV man, too.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, visionary. Um, he pretty much, his hiring practice was whoever ignited his curiosity and interest. And some of my video and music work came his way. And he was like, Who is this kid? Get her. Do you want a job? He hired me. Like, I was living in Vancouver and he was um, interested in my work and just went, Okay, you on. And I'm like, You know what? I am not a supermodel. I'm not going to be able to read teleprompter. I want to speak my mind. He's like, Yes, 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 and yes. And so that was my first job. I moved to, to- Toronto and I there were hours to fill as a Much Music VJ. People still recognize me sure. and they say stuff like, Oh, yeah. Remember that time you showed us how to relieve trap gas? Yeah. All you have to do is put your bum in the air, high point, put your bum in the air because hot air rises. <laughs> and I, there, uh, there are so many things that I've just filled the time with. So the whole building was surveyed. There were cameras on every corner and, and such a great team. And I, one day I said, hey, let's go outside, take their surveillance cameras, point them at me, and I'm going to lie down on Queen Street. As if I were dead. And let's see what happens. Let's see what happens to Torontonians. I think it
0: predates maybe the Michael Moore, because he did something similar with an actor, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, I
1: predate Michael Moore for sure.
0: (laughs) Because he did a similar experiment, but I think you did it first on Much Music, so how about that? Yeah. (laughs) And people did not come to your rescue. did not give two poops. (laughs) About you being perhaps dead. There was
1: one person who stepped over me. Yeah. I remember waiting for the TTC at that exact... Intersection at Queen and John, not with the cameras on. It was the dead of winter, and there were two people. Do you remember that men's sh- suit shop? Sure. That used to be there. Yeah. Fancy men's suit suit shop. Two people, F U K I N G. Yeah. In this the little alcove of the doorway. Really? Yes. And we were just still like. <laughs> what are
0: we, New York City in 1971? What's going on so here? so
1: hilarious. Nobody was saying anything. There is a silence as the two people were grunting and groaning. And that's nothing compared to what was happening in Speaker's Corner. Right. Like the outtakes that they oh, would show at Christmas, our staff Christmas 80%
0: party. 80% not, oh, not showable <laughs> in Speaker's Corner. I remember people making the trip just so they could... You know, do something in speaker's corner, right? Making yeah. the trip from all over Canada and so on. So there was that, and I and you show a little piece of that in, in your in your uh, your performance piece, your play. The other one I remember is you playing this tiny little piano with uh, Tom York oh, from yes, Radiohead. Casio.
1: You remember that? Yes, I do. And I I regret it because he admired my tiny retro Casio so much. I gave it to him. I okay. was like, oh. <laughs> I learned how to play drums on that, listening to the snare on that Casio tone.
0: I just remember you guys kind of jamming, and maybe it was a new music episode, perhaps?
1: Yeah, or... it was when Kid A came out, and it was a special for Kid A. So Tom Tom York and I, as soon as we met, we hit it off very well. We're like both sort of mischievous elf people. So we kind of recognized each other very quickly on. He was very, like most English musicians and post-punks, kind of like suspect of the media. Yeah. And so there was something that was a breath of fresh air coming into like unscripted much music in its heyday uh, before VJs were scripted. Sure. Um, and uh, we just sort of got along very well. So whenever they would come into town, we would make a point of visiting and hanging out and stuff. And it came to such a point where, you know, we would, I would see him within an interview context so frequently. We would try to... um challenge ourselves to figure out a new way to to energize the interview experience for us. I'm sure he so,
0: appreciated or other people many people I'm sure appreciated that.
1: Yeah, so that yeah. one took entire, it took place entirely in my home. We did another one in Oxford where we were like, "Oh, what can we do now?" And then we were like, "Okay, why don't we just go back to back in the same room and not look at each other." And it was a very interesting one because it was very kind of subconscious feeling, very kind of like very revealing. Turn down the lights a bit, but go back to back. Not look at one another, but feel each other's presence in the room. So we were always kind of like playing experiments, and I think that has been that has been a consistent aspect of my my uh, work from early times, early teen times, growing up in Vancouver and dressing up as a ten foot egg noodle, Mister Noodle, to walk around the streets of uh, Vancouver to see what would happen to me. I was beaten up by a gang of skinheads, and I made that into a movie. That was my first movie. So this idea of experimentation and lying on Queen Street, pretending I'm dead, doing unsafe, throwing that experiment in in the works, I think that's something that really drives uh, my curiosity.
0: I'll, I'll share one other experience, and this actually was uh, Paul Templeman. But... He was
1: at the CBC for a bit.
0: Yeah, he was at the CBC yeah. too. Yeah, and so he says hello, but he reminded me that uh, you try, attempted to reclaim the C word while interviewing <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers, well, much to the chagrin of Denise Donlin. <laughs> and I know how that goes. I've made uh... her mad with swear words too. Oh so. my
1: God, that's so funny. Okay, so what happened was I was interviewing the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The previous time they had been at Much Music, uh, was a debacle because uh, I think Erica M was interviewing them and their conversation turned to sex toys and she was extremely uncomfortable sure. about the conversation and kind of got very upset. So they were like, "Oh, we're going to put them on a timer." These
0: those kids. guys were pretty could play pretty dirty pool back in the eighties and early nineties. That
1: I mean, is so true. Yeah. Well, you know, like so when I heard that what, what happened, I was like, "I can talk about sex toys till the cows come home. I'll do the interview, no problem." So we do the interview and you know, like most. Post punks, you have to kind of scrap with them a bit for that for you to win their str- their, their respect, sure. or else they're just going to like slay you on air. So um, we were in a commercial break, surrounded by kids and stuff. And Anthony Kiedis notices my ring, a handmade ring made by my friend Marina. It's a beautiful silver ring. Right. She gave it to me when I left Vancouver to move to Toronto to do the gig. It's included uh, uh, words that were our power slogan. And am I am I allowed to say the word here? Can you sure? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So our saying was "cats, cunts, and rubber cocks," <laughs> because it was only it was all we ever talked about when we got together. I even wrote a song that's like "cats, cunts, and rubber cocks." Cats, cunts, and rubber cocks. It's my ringtone. Yeah, yeah, I got that on here. <laughs> You're my best friend. So it was always an endearingly lovable thing. It was a power slogan for us. It never occurred to me that it was this. A swear word. So, you know, I explained it to him, and he was like, that is so cool. And I'm like, let's wait until we're on air and we can talk about it. So we go on on air and I talk about
0: now, the Now, you did not have ring. some sort of filter in your mind saying no, that this might mean, be a problem. I loved
1: love this word. Right. Um, and so, I, I and you know, we talked about it for quite some time. Okay. And then I saw, you know, the floor director hold up a sign, change the topic. And me being a person who often reveals, you know, Breaks down the fourth wall right. as Moses is encouraged us to do. Right. I'm like, oh, and now they're holding up a sign. Change the topic. We have been talking about it for a long time. So, okay, let's go on to the next
0: question. Right. And it went So respectful, great. but uh, also showing us.
1: Showing what? us the process. The reality, yeah. The reality. Everyone's having a great time. The kids are having a great time. The band, me too. It's like <laughs> awesome. And um, and then as soon as, uh, you know, it's over. I get a very stern look from Denise Dolan. I'm like, "What? That was great!" Yeah. She's like, "We put them on a 20 minute warning. We didn't think it would be for you. Right? Don't you know that the c word is a swear word?" And I was like, "Oh, I right." <laughs> ever
0: like, the ar- I, I, ever I, the artist.
1: I can understand that that could be used very derogatorily, but I only sure. ever used it in. An empowering way, right? It's a strong word, and it's a powerful word.
0: It's a strong. There's a strong argument that uh, you could do that, have that conversation again. I mean, you know, that's still a relevant thing you could do to this day. You know, yeah. with that particular word, words are powerful. They are,
1: and it's so interesting. If like, why it would be much more interesting if we could unpack that word. Right. You know, instead of going,
0: right. it's just a write off. We just don't do that.
1: It's just like Mark Twain. Let's oh. remove all the N words that he uses right. so that we can scrub them from the history books as if that never happened. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's really the way to do it. It's not helpful. It's not, it's, it's not useful to our kids no. to not know the history and not know what happened. We won't learn.
0: So, speaking of kids, uh, did you, were you raised in Vancouver? Or?
1: I was raised in North Van. North Van, that's yeah.
0: okay. So I'm a Victoria kid.
1: Oh, I was a Lynn Valley kid, right?
0: <laughs> and so, you
1: are, there's a Satan Fest in your yeah. You know, there's a lot. There. So they, very, they very well organized, well organized Satan Fest, but
0: huge ska fest. Uh, they have some very unique festivals in Victoria, but um, so North Van, kind of suburbs, I guess. A
1: total s- t- tiny town. Yeah, <clears throat> by the mountains. When I grew when I grew up, there were a lot of headbangers, a lot of like shit shit kicking. In Dayton Boots. Right. And like, you know, we'd go Just to the park. getting smokes. And there'd be like a bunch of headbangers sitting on our <laughs> seesaw. We're like, darn, we can't go on the seesaw. The bigger people are there and they're smoking and drinking Jack Daniel.
0: Right. And, bro- and uh, brothers, sisters? or
1: Yeah, I had, I had three sisters. Okay. So Chinese-Canadian family. My parents are first-gen Canadian. Or actually, I'm first-gen. They were immigrants right. and grew up in a pretty... Um, Pretty secluded, sort of working, working middle class neighborhood, um, but not not. It was like me and Bev Wong and my sisters were the only Chinese kids in the name in 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 you know the radius of fifty miles. So yeah, and all was,
0: that entails in the seventies and eighties.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: It's a different experience. Yeah, very than, marginal, than very, I
1: would very think. alienating. But also, I had a very strict family, mm-hmm. so just spent a lot of time watching TV. And like being, you know, trying to achieve all A's at school and stuff. So very strict, strict family. And then uh, it all sort of broke to hell when, when you know, my parents uh, couldn't keep it together anymore. And they ended up having a very uh, toxic divorce. And I took that possibility of escape at 15. So I ran away from home when I was 15. You ran so, away. Yeah. So I ended up um, just sort of going from a very, I don't I guess over... Protected
0: space. Yeah, structured, routined.
1: And also kind of nuts because my mom was uh, really really wrestling with some major mental difficulties. Mm -hmm. Being um, a a housebound housewife, alienated from her family and culture and trying to raise kids that she didn't necessarily want. So there was a lot of rage there. Right. Um, And so, yeah, it, it was a pretty quite a bit of upheaval in, in my family. In, in Chinese families, people really don't get divorced, so it was quite dramatically horrible enough for them to actually go, let's leave.
0: It really is amazing that people do as well as they do, isn't it? They really when do. When you think about it. I
1: mean, when you think about
0: both of my <laughs> parents, recipe. my mom
1: surviving the Cultural Revolution, my dad being an orphan at war, one gen, and here I am living such a privileged life compared to them, but still their, their move to, to Canada was fraught. And difficult trying to fit in here. Um, and then, so, yeah, when the, my family collapsed, I just took off. and Egg noodle. I became an egg noodle, walking <laughs> the streets of Vancouver. No, I ended up just, like, embracing arts, which I was always forbidden to take. Okay. And um, I was a very shy kid, and I ended up just entering a lot of contests, writing plays, expressing myself in painting, making videos and films. And then suddenly I'm, like, living on Dyke Row. In Vancouver, in an enclave of artists and lesbians, who became like my extended family, who were so hugely um, influential on on my younger self.
0: And your mind and everything is so malleable at that point that it, there is an ability—if if you've got it in you—you you can go with the flow.
1: Well, you always do. Every child does. Every child, like is I, I was—I
0: wasn't quite that way. I don't but, know
1: about that. Yeah. Well, you might not think it, but man, those—you <laughs> can tell with the kid, you know. You, I'll, I'll I'll go up to a kid and I'll I'll speak Cantonese uh-huh. and they'll be able to say it back to me very very pr- pitch perfect because their rigidity of language isn't so formed mm-hmm. so and a lot of the time the lives of children are full of upheaval and, and torment and yet they kind of roll with it you know so maybe when you were really young when you were five you had el- elasticity. <laughs> Although Mark, I think you're maybe more <laughs> elastic than your exterior demeanor
0: <laughs> right. suggests. Oh, you're a bit
1: stealth. <laughs> I mean, you hang out in Algonquin Park for goodness'
0: sake. That's true for months on end. Yeah, that was only how
1: the I, malleable do
0: that. <laughs> the malleable. We use that word. Uh, still, mom, dad, uh, sister's still in the picture, or
1: um, my sister and I were street kids, and she passed away. My uh, my sister Didi. In in her in her young life. Wow! And so, yeah, there. I am aware that there are real, real, real consequences for young people, and um, yeah, it was very. You can roll with it to a point. You roll with it w- how you can. I mean, it it still feels very heavy to me. I mean, I was her surrogate mom when we we were we both left, oh, and so I was also just too young to take care of her. But I still feel tremendous amount of guilt for for not being able to raise her as well as I could. So but yeah, so that that is that was that was super difficult and stays with me for a long time. Um
0: How are you with the baggage? I have my good days and my bad days.
1: I feel that the baggage has informed who I am. I think yeah. the baggage and the obstacles and the challenges of life has entirely fueled me and specifically the difficult relationship with my mom. My mom, I don't know where she is. She's MIA. And um, she's a very um, turbulent person. Um, she's kind of like Callie, the goddess of destruction. Um, she can, she will fuck your shit up. Right. She will kill you. Right. Um, <laughs> and right now, she, I just think it's really hard for her to be around people because she immediately turns them into the hostile person that she must um, kill. And right. so, um, yeah, there was a point where I was the only person in the family talking to her. Everyone's like, don't do it. Um, because she just has, seems to be unable to do that, and so, <clears throat> you know, I did have to strike, you know, set my boundary when she started again being very difficult with me, and and I just said, hey, if you're going to treat me that way, I can't really do that. So sort of inviting abuse, and so she was like, see ya. It's so funny. I don't it's, know where she is right now.
0: It's amazing how that those dynamics continue to be reframed and reframed and reframed as we leaf through the chapters or chapters of our own life. And thank you know. God for
1: art. Yeah. Because I do think that primal conflict of the person I love the most sort of transforming into this other sort of hostile entity I think really gives me insight into humans and desire for connection, love, and also acceptance of the tumult and conflict. The baggage to me is kind of extraordinary. The tears are... The tears are um they're sacred
0: well it gives weight to something you experience too that's why a piece of theater for somebody who's you know emotionally somewhat mature you can go to something and and be truly affected by it because it, our lives it's are, affecting your own conversation you yeah know?
1: our lives are challenging i don't know anyone who's who, who doesn't have those difficulties
0: More with Sukin Lee in moments. You're listening to Art at the End of the World, the podcast on the Zoomer Podcast Network. Let's get back to this conversation. I don't think I need to reframe this for the purpose of our Art at the End of the World theme at all, because we're really just talking about these themes during the entire conversation. So let's get back to Sukin Lee. Your show is called Unsafe. And uh, you bring up a lot of different elements of censorship, and it speaks to so many of the ideas that we've uh, tried to unpack here on this program. And you give examples of, of perhaps things that have been censored wrongly for a long time or, or maybe uh, ideas that are uh, by a, a large group of people that were always considered to be taboo but uh, maybe we need to you know be looking at both sides of the both sides of the coin here and i was reminded as as i watched your show of an experience i had uh, when i worked at 1039 proud fm which is an lgbt focused radio station i was there for 3 years and so i got a lot of experiences that a straight white guy doesn't get to have mm-hmm. for one thing i was uh, in the minority for the first time in yes. my, my life in that situation uh, i went to a big kink party while I was there. And uh, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't even know how to, what I should dress up as or do anything. I dressed I dressed up as Indiana Jones. That's how crazy I was. I just treated it like Halloween. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do what I want to do, you know? And I remember the guy I was with. Yeah, right. And so at least I had a whip, you know? So, but the guy I was with, uh, uh, Sean Pru, who is, uh, you know, a host in this town and a media guy, he... He said, I was so worried, but you actually looked kind of cool amongst all the people. And it was a huge party. And there were people, you know, men with big beards dressed as little Bo Peep. There were, uh, there was one woman who had, uh, uh Icarus wings literally jammed into her back and she was bleeding down her back. Wow. It was an incredible experience. And, uh, uh, there was a dungeon and there was all types of oddness going on. And I turned one corner and I saw, about four or five guys dressed up in SS Nazi mm. uniforms, com- complete with all the medals. Sure, complete Very
1: fetishized look.
0: Yeah, it was a. There you are. So it was a fetish party, and they also had a uh, these sort of ice blue contact lenses mm. in mm-hmm. to really complete the, the look. look. And it really stuck with me. I thought this is one of the most strange, you know. Uh, uh, images I've ever stumbled upon. They're real. Uh, There's a motivation there. I remember hearing Lemmy from Motorhead talk about how he really loved all that, the look and feel of all that gear Mm -hmm. as well. And I've been struggling. Very powerful, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. I've been struggling with how I
1: used to dress as a, you know, a military sergeant and immediately would be able to go to the front of bank lineups. Right. Prince Harry dressed as a Nazi. He did yeah, a Halloween party thing. Got was like roasted for that.
0: That was tricky as, a, this, as a royal. So
1: this kink party. What, what year would it be?
0: So we're looking at 20, 2009. So I did, it's not lost on me that that's ten years ago. And mm-hmm. and things that was, change. They do.
1: Yeah. Now you wouldn't be able to do that. I don't think it's so. Like you can't walk around wearing a headdress. No. Like a lot of people used to do that.
0: Like, it's fascinating how Gwen Stefani went through a real. She got, really got break through the coals through her various appropriations over the years. Just over this last year, because of course everybody's looking back to the '90s and her Benzine, and Saris yeah. and and various you right. know you know other elements of Asian yeah, culture. T-
1: time does change in different. Like I did find um, in you know in making unsafe, looking at art and censorship, I wanted to look historically, like the diving point off the diving point. That we were commissioned with was the idea of the Eli Langer case from 25 years ago. A painter who was accused of depicting child's pornography in his paintings. It mm-hmm. went to trial. He was arrested. The gallery the gallery curator was arrested at the Mercer Union Gallery. Uh, the charges were dropped because many people in the arts community came to the fore and said it's a work of art and it didn't fit the criminal code of child porn. So it was thrown out. And so it's very difficult to try art in the court of law. It's a big waste of taxpayers' money. It just doesn't work out. Right, um, But that does not mean the idea of controlling has gone away. And as I was uncovering more instances of artists being censored and what have you, it became very clear that um, it's more in the domain of exclusionary practices, silencing, and like the question of who gets access to the media and who gets heard. Um, those types of ideas running into a disab- disability activist artist who... Experienced an incredibly uh, confrontational and um, silencing um, be- uh, interaction with the Art Gallery of Ontario, and you know, ta- speaking with Leila Benbrook was uh, part of an Arab Canadian art exhibition that was canceled by the Canadian Museum of History after 9/11 due to insensitivity concerns. You know, like, these things start to started to repeat, and even the TTC being involved in this particular um, site specific public artwork now that costs two million dollars. It's called Lightspell, and it's about you know a light board that you can write what you want while you're waiting for the subway. And now they're worried that it's going to be used for hate speech, so it's not yet been turned on. So it sits there in limbo, up until you know so many instances uh, of musicians decrying the fact that they have to pay, uh, pay expensive submission fees to be just to be eligible for a music award, which really puts. Um, the Juno is in every single huge award show in perspective when you realize, oh, all of them have paid so much money to get in. Right. That who's left the gate? The gatekeepers keep the poor out. It's class. So just these kind of interesting things started to bubble up. Um, and so, yeah, that is all context. We it's were it's about, disorientating. It is. It's a lot. It's a lot. It makes us question our biases, um, our systems that we construct. That are supposed to—they're paid by the taxpayers, and they should reflect people more. (laughs) But when you when you realize that all of our cultural, in all of them, including the CBC, the you know AGO, the National Gallery, Canadian Stage, Canadian Stage—who is putting this thing on? All upper management is white. That's a specific lens, and so I think. It begin the piece begins with an extraordinary interview with Matthew Jocelyn the former artistic director of Canadian Stage.
0: I was just going to bring it up and you right away you dive into the idea of checking boxes. Yeah. Was I hired to check a box?
1: And he's like I'm a 6-year-old totally entitled white guy who grows up in the classical position. I just and he even says I don't even know if we should be absorbing all people into this Form of theater because maybe they shouldn't. Maybe it's reverse colonialism. I don't know. He's very specific. He's seeing life from that.
0: What do you think about reverse colonialism it's as an idea?
1: Very crazy. Um, to me, it's uh, when he said that I was like, "Wow, this is like um, that book." Um,
0: but there is a sense if you pay attention to the art world right now, whether it be in theater, film. I mean, even the, the presenters at the Oscars. Everything. Everybody is is making it somewhat of an intention. To include, trying to to try and be diverse, I or mean, at least on the face of what the they do. On the face of it, yeah. I think
1: the Oscars are trying to, because now the head is a is a woman of color, so uh-huh. she's actually making real real change. I feel, or trying to push for that. And then there's other things like you can tell when it's the lens is just like we got to check the box. It's usually. People that don't really aren't from those communities that are like, okay, got to, got to fill in, you know, the and, this, when it becomes it obvious, really real.
0: when it becomes obvious, yeah, it it, it, it's, it's, not, it's difficult,
1: and it also doesn't attract the the community of which you are trying to appeal to and invite in. A lot of our 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 systems are changing now. Hollywood has to change because look at the biggest movies; they're not. No one's going to see a Julia Roberts movie anymore. Right. They're seeing co-pros around the world where are with real multi. Multi diverse casts and 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 countries collaborating on stuff. Those are the big ticket movies, yeah. you know. And so the people in power are like, "Oh, geez, economically, that's what people we got to change." And so I think there is change happening, but it also requires what's different in in the privates. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't um, deliver, you're fired. In public, you can hang on to your territory for a very long time. You can hang there for a long time and not necessarily deliver and not necessarily enact what your 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 responsibility is as a public broadcaster.
0: And 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 so it
1: does require those some of those people to give up responsibility. Like with Matthew, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of out of touch, you know, and now I'm stepping away and passing it to somebody else. It's going to be full of conflict and difficulty, but I'm going to.
0: And by delivery, do you mean it's got to make a return on? dollars or it's well, got be. in, the, in got, the
1: private world doll it would be doll you right. gauge it by dollars but you can also look Attendance. by listenership right a lot of the places even i see theater that's a, a theater some of the uh, older art forms like cbc many places their listenership their viewers viewing audience um they're dying they're older people they're older white audiences right and if they want to sit, keep viable they do have to bring in new people you know appeal to some of these cultural conversations or else they're going to go away. Like, who's going to want, like, but they don't quite know how to. And may, maybe if they actually hire people in positions of power that know how to access communities in real ways.
0: So that's the theme that comes up over and over again. If we put those people in those positions of power, not just as performers. or Not just or because not-
1: you were a tick box by somebody else who's like, hey, yeah, we need this guy here because he's like, whatever. And then put him in or put her in. It doesn't work that way.
0: But it's messy because you, you, I know so many people who've tried to hang on to that older, aging, predominantly white audience, and they are struggling or maybe not even trying at all to, to pick up the next generation. Yeah, sometimes and, they
1: don't care. And like, I feel like, especially if you're a public broadcaster, if you're hired by Canadian taxpayers, you have a, you have a service. Yeah. You have a responsibility. You can't just be cushy-cozy in your fiefdom. And not making a visionary decision.
0: I thought it was interesting shortly after I saw your piece that uh, Donald Trump signed an executive order suggesting that uh, more people are going to be allowed to safely speak in universities and colleges in the States. And I think he was looking to protect you know, conservative voices, and 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 that's happened very recently. I mean, it's
1: so interesting how it's all been like it's like Animal Farm. Everything's inverted. Yeah. You know, but I do think, um, you know.
0: But you speak to uh, some artists in in your piece who are sort of of the millennial mm-hmm. age, and they talk about how, yes, indeed, some yeah, things, some some ideas should be censored, and. Yeah. And I thought that was a very uh, thoughtful part of the program because it really got me thinking. Wow, this is uh, a big conversation amongst younger people right now. Absolutely. Comedians are having trouble with younger people right now. Okay. We're seeing a big—they're uh, born into there. a world
1: that's full of upheaval. They've inherited a really screwed-up place, yeah. and they're seeing their peers, their friends, being turfed out of out of America because they they don't, they don't quote unquote belong in America or whatever. Sure a lot of tumultuous things, conflicts of extremities, fundamentalism, um, conflict, environmental degradation, conflict. And they're like, so you you understand it's a generational thing. It's like um, Matthew Jocelyn is the same generation as Robert Lepage, you know, regaled Canadian theater maker who came up with Kanata and Slav, you know, a Slava based upon the African-American you know, a struggle in Canada and Quebe- Quebecois history and so forth, but he didn't hire any African-Canadian actors. And in Kanata, indigenous relationships um, between the government of Canada and, and and indigenous populations and peoples, and no one, not one indigenous actor. So, you know, Robert, Robert Lepage would say, hey, it's my freedom to do that. And like Matthew Jocelyn, they both come from like, inherent. they came from a, a struggle when they were young people, it was like all about freedom. freedom, freedom, freedom. And those some of those struggles were really, really important for for you know many many social movements were rendered from the '60s hippies that wanted wanted um power and freedom for people.
0: And we think of but, Robert uh, struggling through Quebec in the '50s and '60s with very much its own struggle, and uh, Matthew certainly with his own uh, big ideas that he's trying to share with the world. But
1: but. No. And then so some of the millennials, specifically Zoe Voss and Ben Camino, two dancers, you're like, Yeah, when we heard about that, we're like, screw that shit. I'm I'm signing this this um thing to shut it down. So it's like, is it is it censorship or is it just free to say, hey, I don't dig what you're doing and I think what you're doing is wrong and I'm not gonna support what you're doing. I'm not gonna give you my dollar. And so what happened was producers started to see, oh, okay, people aren't really liking that and it's people's choice. It wasn't like a government sanction, like boom. Yeah. It was more like, okay, use your dollar, use your ability to protest if you wish so to, incline and consequences will occur. I mean, he's going to he's going to continue to remount them, and now Robert Lepage says he's going to reconsider Slav. And then we have George Eliot Clark weigh in and say, well, if you're going to reconsider it, just don't like pop it off like easy peasy. Just hire a few black actors. Don't just Literally check the think, box. Don't just check the box. Do your due diligence. Do it right. And Did then it... so he brings up an interesting thing is that is different from this juncture in time. When it was, before it was like, hey, if I want to you know, write for a black character, I will. Darn it, I've got the freedom to do that. Now it's like people are saying maybe the people that experience the story should be able to tell the story. Maybe yeah. – as a person, you're free to do whatever you want. Of
0: course, at your own peril, though.
1: At your own peril. Yeah. You might, But you better probably do it with the due diligence and get the right, you know, right, lo- your facts straight.
0: A lot of wokeness going on. People <laughs> are woke all over the darn place.
1: And it's hard, too, though, because, you know, I think censorship will never go away in, in a weird, in, you know, whatever that is. is just like, it's also people just sort of like online and so forth now have the liberty to to speak out about the things that they're not unhappy with. At the same time, it's it also cuts both ways because we're very, very heightenedly aware of this need to proffer a perfect online self-portrait. And we, we all see all of our friends and family members and all kinds of people getting called out and suffering the consequences. So it almost makes many of us more reluctant to speak out.
0: Yeah, it does. In fact, uh, we had uh, DJ Scratch Bastard on the show about five weeks ago, and he sort of echoed your sentiment, which is, you know, when you've watched other kids go get lambasted for whatever, yeah, and suddenly you realize this huge part of your identity, which is social media, and you have to censor yourself all the time just so you don't face that backlash. What a strange. World to grow up in, and something that you to strange. deal with.
1: And we can't like <clears throat> everyone's talking, but nobody ever talks very, 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 very seldom about sex. It's yeah. still so taboo. It really is. We never do that, and we never show ourselves looking ugly or boring and annoying. That's too much
0: of a risk. Yeah, I'm a real rock star on my social media. I don't know about you.
1: <laughs> Are you you're just as Indiana Jones, aren't you?
0: <laughs> I'm looking good over there. I'll say that much. Well, know, sometimes
1: it's it's, it's uh, troubling because I think it is inducing a very confused and anxious space and alienating. Like it's great that we're talking talking through all these media, but it's also weird that we're not sharing space. I mean, I really never really thought of theater as a, my go-to medium. I do dance in sort of impressionistic poetic performances. I go to it for more of an um, expressive, um, non-narrative expression. But this is the first time I've done a play, a narrative play. And I do find it interesting, like before I had a great resistance to it, I would be like, I would never write anything that took place in a set of a kitchen or right. a living room, right. like a domestic situation. I, if I did that, it'd be like in a movie where I feel like more of a suspension of disbelief. But I did jump at this because I do think that it is crucial and a beautiful space to share face to face time. It really is. But I think, so I think Berkeley Street Theater. Yeah. I think there's a kind of like possibility of theater not doing Ain't Misbehaving or all of those old timey stuff, mm-hmm. but maybe using it for the energetic utility of bringing people together who need to be together.
0: You've to definitely, you definitely took a real you know, plunge into to playing around with the, with the idea and with the format and, yeah, it's, and it's, all of it.
1: It's like <clears throat> the reviews are in and it's like, I'm batting 50, 50 people <laughs> love it. Or they're like, this is not a play.
0: Right. It's it is so rough.
1: Yeah. It's it. so, it's so ugly. Why are the videos? So u- some, like some people are like that or like, well, I don't get it,
0: but it's like the same. It's like, it's like the old idea, right? You know, we, we look back at uh, the best picture winners at uh, during the Oscars and there's some years you look back and you go, Whatever, like who even remembers that movie? That's that was such a boring movie, and that was a bad pick. And then there's other times where you go, "Yeah, they really got it right." That's the one I remember from that year. You know, that's the one. And then one you look that... back,
1: and all the critics hated it, <laughs> right? Like, like Cassavetti's movies were always killed, right?
0: And and but regardless, right. I think the the measure has to be. Did I walk out of there and think about it for the next couple of weeks yeah, I mean, I had and to, reference it as life went on? And I think I will always do that with, oh, your, that's awesome. with your piece.
1: I love that. I mean, it was a thorny, many tentacled beast that I had to like. I was still writing by the time we hit rehearsals. By the time we, I changed it every night, no, I added a new sentence last night. You know, so it you've, is got, a, you've
0: got the ability to do that
1: yeah, I'm the playwright, so I, can't.
0: <laughs> but not <laughs> now just, my
1: director is not there, so I'm like, oh, but
0: God. even formatically too, that you it, it's just it leaves you a little bit of wiggle room to to play with it. I would imagine,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. and so that's exciting. and and I mean, outs are just criticism, right? So I mean, I'm, i i I feel that through this process, I'm just having to galvanize my sense of like, okay, be okay. Yeah. Let people be. Yep. Let people be in all of their whatever.
0: And even and then, during your talkbacks, I mean, you want to talk about critics. I mean, people are, are getting in your face about oh, yeah. some some of the things they've just seen. So you're just receiving it right away. I am. You know, yeah, you know, for sure. Right I'm off like, the bat. People have had like, 30 seconds. To, yeah, and then to, I'm
1: like, well, what do you think? And they're like, huh? What? I'm like, but, yeah, what do you think about but but kudos to I the, love that?
0: But kudos to the arts world, right? I mean, uh, people sometimes say, well, look at all the changes that are happening in our theaters on, on the big screen. And our media and our media and and it's happening. And I think it might have been a little jarring for a certain part of the populace at a certain point. But I think people are adjusting and it would be once again, it's the artists leading the way and in one format or another uh, moving this conversation along and as difficult as it is. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think thank goodness as artists we have this ability to express ourselves. It's such a life giving thing. At the same time, we do put our ass on the line. Yeah. You know, I'm like I'm looking for my next gig. I was thinking you know about what that. I mean? I'm a freaking freelancer now. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> I get to interview Iy Wei coming up. That's that going to be really freaking awesome.
0: He's, I just saw his bicycle exhibit uh, down in, uh, they've got it up in Austin right now for South by Southwest. Oh, yeah? It is unbelievable. You got to see this I, thing. I'll look that up. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm
1: excited to speak with him. Again, a person precariously working within a very confining box, you know. I did find that with this, this thing too. Sure. You know, you are a box tick, perhaps. Yeah. But you can subvert that freaking box. You could, there's a lot you can – people always, like, say, get out of the box. Sometimes it's like you don't, you don't have a door out of the box, just like your jail cell. So you better, like, imagine something and, like, redefine that box and use the power within the box to shift the whole conversation around. That's what I was hoping. And Ai Weiwei, I think he is very well aware of the constraints of the Chinese government upon his work. Yeah. He's now living in exile, but he is also – it doesn't – it's not like he was a free guy. But I mean, so there we are, you know, the artists are there. They are forging ahead, but they are at peril. It's, you know, when I grew up, it was like to be an artist was a sacred un- undertaking. It was like a calling. We're, we're like spiritual people, philosophical people. And now I'm like, if I was a young person today, no, I'd go into I.T. Are you crazy? <laughs>
0: Let's make some money here. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you prepared for a little rapid fire? Sure. Okay. So I, I don't know if this message was uh, relayed to you, but uh, we tried to do a little list thought I'd ask you five pieces of art, it could be any format, it could be a musician, a piece of theater, a visual artist, what have you, that, that were uh, benchmarks for you, that changed your perspective, that you remember as being very, very important in your experience and helped to define, you know, your path forward.
1: Let's see. Um, I as think even. probably The Plague by Albert Camus. So when I was 15, I had previously been much more of a suburban kid. When I was 14, and then I ran into the only punk in my small town, and uh, he gave me a bunch of existentialist books and right. uh, post-punk albums.
0: Good to have that guy. And
1: that blew my brain out. Yeah. And the, so, yeah, definitely Albert Camus' account of rat infestation and uh, uh, people unable to leave their their city during war because of the infestation being a kind of um, anal- analogous to World War Two. Uh, was um, very deeply penetrating to me.
0: Isn't it wonderful when we're kids, too, how we can truly love, you know, a piece of art that gets thrown our way? A book or a, a movie can be so, it's so, it's so game-changing. Changing. Absolutely. Yeah, it is so Another nutritious. game-changer
1: was Repulsion by Roman Polanski. Again, I was a child TV addict looking at TV shows, kids' shows, cartoons, and then blam! Holy smokes, what is this going on? Catherine Deneuve is a young woman trapped in her house imagining these horrible machination nightmares of like rabbits full of maggots and uncertainty and like her being a beautiful woman in society and feeling assailed by, by men. I turned that channel so quickly. I was like, yike. But then my child imagination was like, what is going on there? And I turned back and, and I stuck with it and I must've been like eight or nine and I could very much identify with the existential crisis this this young woman was going through, and it was again something a light
0: that is mind blowing to think of an eight year old being able to we, we attach.
1: A, we know we know we're like that's the thing is kids are stealth they look so cute uh-huh. but they're highly highly advanced beings especially newborns they're on this whole other level yeah. they look cute and you know we're programmed to like. Look at them and want to protect them because they're like all soft and gushy and stuff. But they're such sentient, high-level beings. Boop, boop,
0: boop, 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 there was boop, a baby boop, boop, sitting there when you came in. I don't know. Did you see that baby? I didn't see that? Yeah, baby. it was really cute. Oh my
1: <laughs> god! Well, that baby's like. I am taking everything in. Full
0: sponge in effect. All right, number three.
1: Let's see. Probably Susie and the Banshee. It's great. Love that. From the cradle bus comes a beckoning voice that sends you spinning. You have no choice. I can Following see it. Following the footsteps of a doll, <laughs> to your own trance, Okay, yeah, that that was in the group. And I'm up to three. I'm,
0: I'm, really, I'm really nuts for that uh, Sirius Satellite channel, First Wave. And so they just play. That's all wow. the kind of music so they cool. play, and I love it.
1: Yeah. Um, Dream of the Red Chamber, a Chinese classic. So amazing. A beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and and, and, and uh, an epic tale like no other. So you really get into the Chinese um, imagination, whereby generations of accounts occur, lives, families, uh, relationships, through relationships. Um, and, you know, one of them is um, a rock that falls in love with a will-o'-wisp, you know, interspecies, Connections between plants and people and rocks and people that are Um, meaningful—a total other sense of narrative that really was amazing.
0: I had uh, Cameron Bailey on, and we went through his uh, top three films of all time, or that had a huge effect on him, and it was fascinating to to think about world cinema that way and the different ways we can tell stories in in different parts of the world. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah.
1: And let me see.
0: Number uh, five, I think. (laughs) This is it.
1: there's so many more I um, know. but but um i mean i love i love um dora carrington's paintings so Dara- dora carrington was um a woman who was a painter in the time of like the Bloomsbury group and was um sort of a life mate of lytton strachey who's um a writer and both of them were gay but they had a very romantic love fueled relationship for their whole lives um dora did extraordinary paintings At that time, women were not taken seriously, so it was considered, like, crafty. Meanwhile, he's, like, regaling everybody with his stories and stuff in the background. Dora is going and finding abandoned homes in the countryside in England, refurbishing them, turning them into beautiful works of art, painting her friends such a staggering amount of gorgeous work that in her lifetime uh, were completely ignored and only posthumously appreciated. I think I think she's she's somebody that I really love.
0: Good list, great list, very thoughtful. It really was a pleasure, and thank you, Suk-Yin Lee.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mark.
0: There it is—one of my favorite conversations from the first season of Art at the End of the World, Sookie Lee. And you can find her on all the social media platforms. She's very active, and it's always fascinating to see what she's getting up to. And uh, she is willing to put it out there it's what she does my name is mark wigmore thank you for visiting the art at the end of the world podcast we're going to be back on monday with a fresh episode you can always subscribe wherever you enjoy podcasts of course itunes stitcher spotify if you happen to be at your desktop or laptop you can enjoy at classicalfm.ca A big thank you to our sponsors, of course, Red Eye Media and Crows Theater. And you can always enjoy a performance at Crows at uh, Carla and Dundas, where they live. You can find us on social media, me, Mark Wigmore, and Art at the End of the World, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we are looking forward to getting into the home stretch of the podcast with, uh, gosh, three or four more episodes left. We'll speak to you then and for as long as we can.